projects had in common was that despite the fact that the Constitution has been adopted for over 200 years, the quality of the understanding of them in the, in the, uh, among judges and lawyers is very low. And in particular, uh, the provision in the Constitution which allows a convention to propose amendments was widely misunderstood. And so for me at that time, it was just another project. There wasn't, there wasn't a particular agenda uh, 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 behind it any more than there's a particular agenda on all the writings I've done in all the years since. Oh. Uh, oh. It's simply a matter of trying to make the Constitution understandable to legislators and, and, to, um, and to judges and to lawyers and to citizens. Now, do you feel that, uh, that, that we are the closest so far, or has there been historical references of states getting as close as we have? Have, have there been cases where more states have, been, uh, have filed uh, applications, or, or, or is this it? I mean, are we on to something, or was there something historical that, that we're not aware of where, we, uh, where they got closer to the uh, th- uh, three-fifths? Well, um, uh, to two-thirds. Two Right. Uh, just to clarify for some of you listeners who might not be familiar with this area, if you wish to amend the Constitution, any amendment has to be approved by three quarters of the state of the states. Uh, usually, that's been been done by state legislatures. In one case, it was done by state conventions. But in order to get an amendment to the states for ratification, you first have a, have to have it validly proposed. And that can be done one of two ways. Either Congress, by a two-thirds majority in each house, can propose an amendment, and that's been done many times, or a gathering, uh, an assembly of representatives from the states, traditionally called a convention of states or a, tradition, or a convention of the states, uh, can propose such a measure. That has not been done for constitutional amendments, but we have had many, many conventions of states in our history. Now, your question was, have we gotten further along the road toward a, uh, a, a convention for proposing an amendment? That's what the, the Congress calls the uh, Constitution calls it, a convention for proposing an amendment. And the answer is yes. Um, probably the most notable example was that as you probably know, before the um, 17th Amendment was adopted in 1913, uh, senators were selected by state legislatures. There was very widespread popular support for moving that to a vote of the people. And I recognize that that amendment is controversial in a few quarters today, but in fact, about 90 percent of the American people were in favor of directly electing U.S. senators. But Congress could not propose an amendment to do that because the Senate always blocked it. The Senate consisted of people who had been chosen by the state legislatures, and naturally they didn't want to choose the way in which they were uh, selected. So the states began an application campaign. It began in 1899 and continued up until about 1912. And at that time, in 1912, there were 48 states. Uh, You needed 32 of them. Uh, to, to call a convention, and the states got to 30 or 31, depending on how you count. They were just one or two shy, and then Congress threw in the towel, or more specifically, the Senate threw in the towel, and uh, proposed the amendment on, on its own, so a convention wasn't necessary. There have been a number of cases in American history, though, not just that one, where 
the only reason or principal reason that Congress uh, acceded or agreed to propose an amendment was because the states threatened to have a convention and, and, and do it themselves. One was uh, the 22nd Amendment, which limited the president to two, two, uh, two terms. All right. Term uh, limits for the president. states had already proposed uh, or already uh, passed resolutions for such a convention when Congress agreed to propose one itself. That became the 22nd Amendment. And a more famous example is the Bill of Rights. Uh, the Bill of Rights was adopted in large part because the states, specifically Virginia and New York, started a campaign for a convention to propose an amendment. They said if, if Congress doesn't, doesn't do this, the states will do it, do it themselves. So even though the process has never been triggered, there's some, been some near misses and also um, on a few occasions, the only reason we got an amendment is because the states threatened to do this. Do you think that could happen again with the new movement for some amendments that uh, Congress will eventually come around and uh, propose them itself? I don't think it's terribly likely. And and the reason I say that is because, and I'm sorry if I offend anybody here, but don't. I believe that Congress is a good deal more arrogant than it has been in virtually any time, time of our history. Yep. Um, for example, on several occasions, the balanced budget advocates, the advocates of a balanced budget amendment, have been very, very close to the number of 34 that they need. And yet Congress has steadfastly refused to pass a balanced budget amendment, despite copious uh, evidence that it's necessary, or at least some version, some fiscal restraint right. is necessary. I think Congress is at the stage where they simply do not want any constraint on their powers whatsoever. There is some chance that they could pass what uh, – people who work in this field call, call preemptive amendment. Right. That is, they could say, well, uh, it looks like there's there's a great sentiment out there for, again, let's use the example of balanced budget amendment. There's great sentiment out there for a balanced budget amendment, and so we'll pass one of our own, and we'll defang uh, the Convention of States monster. The problem with that is pre preemptive amendments tend to have huge loopholes through which you can drive a Mack truck. Uh, and so any amendment that's likely to come out of Congress on that issue is likely to be so filled with uh, ways in which Congress can disregard the amendment, it may be worse than no change at all. We have some experience along these lines in the states where, the, where state legislatures have finally proposed constitutional amendments when their back was against the wall and they proposed these amendments which turn out to be worse than no amendment at all. So, yeah, in answer to your question, is it is possible uh, that Congress could propose an amendment. It is possible also that it could be a preemptive kind of amendment. I don't think either possibility is probable, though. Well, it's interesting what you said uh, at the beginning of our discussion, which was you said your your job was to make the Constitution understandable. And uh, I think that's a, a very worthwhile job for a law professor, someone who teaches constitutional law. However, I have to remind you, I think, that there's another school of constitutional law teaching in America, which is that says that the Constitution is whatever the Supreme Court says it is. And so why read the Constitution? It's so hard to make out. It's an 18th century document. There's a lot of ambiguity. 
Uh, you know, you got to read the the case law. You got to read the precedents from the Supreme Court, and you have to read the latest in uh, in articles. Like uh, you know, you know, one one good example is this right to privacy that came out of a, a law review article that uh, Brandeis had written before he even became a, a justice. Where do you stand on that? How do you read the Constitution? Well, if any, anyone who wants to know what the Constitution was originally. I've got a book out on the subject. You can pick it up at Amazon. It's called, <laughs> obviously, the original Constitution, what it actually said it meant. And it's for lay people. Uh, it, however, uses history and it uses uh, legal analysis, uh, analysis of 18th century law uh, and, the, and the proceedings of the writing and the adoption of the Constitution to explain what the Constitution actually meant. It's not, you know, there's, there's a school of thought out there that you can just read the Constitution and understand it. It's not quite that simple, I'm afraid. But on mm-hmm. the other hand, there's an opposite school of thought, and you just touched on it, uh, that requires, you know, years and years and years of study uh, and specialized training in order to understand it. I, I think my book, uh, the, the, the original Constitution, demonstrates that the truth is somewhere uh, in between. Now, to underscore what you just said about the law professors and others who say that uh, uh, who say that you've got to read all this stuff uh, to understand the Constitution, there's a saying among some people in the, uh, who teach uh, law as, uh, in the law schools, and that saying is, "Well, you know, I, I don't have my students read the Constitution; it just confuses them." Right. Uh, in my class, we always began, and I was professor of law at the University of Montana for many, many years. In my class, we always started off with a reading of the Constitution, oral. That is to say, students would take turns, and every once in a while, I would dip in to explain what a particular provision meant. And then one of the things that we did, we, of course, read lots of modern cases and lots of interpretations, but we would always go back to the original document. We would say, well, you know, this is what Justice Marshall or Justice Taney or Justice Brandeis is saying here. Does that really check in with the text? Does that really make sense? And that not only acquainted them with what the original Constitution meant, it also made them much better lawyers because um, – I will give the Supreme Court some credit here. The Supreme Court is much more concerned about uh, original understanding and a text than, than, than it was, say, 40 years ago. And so if you're going to be a good lawyer and, 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 uh, and deal with constitutional cases, you're going to have to understand the original Constitution as well as what the courts have done to it. But if you look at a case like Roe v. Wade, the uh, abortion right was uh, in a right to privacy which, as the Supreme Court said, was found in the penumbras and emanations of the Constitution. So when you read the Constitution, do you also read the penumbras and emanations? No. Uh, the penumbra and emanation language actually comes from a, uh, an opinion by Justice William O. Douglas in a different case, the Griswold case, right. which you rightly say did originate the right, uh, the right to privacy. Um, it's difficult, really, to understand fully what he, what he meant by that. Let, let me just let me just point out this. It is true that every provision in the Constitution has a story behind it, and many of these stories are centuries old. For example, uh, people sometimes read the treason clause, you know, uh, adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort, that language. That language comes out of a statute passed in Parliament in the 1300s. That's how old some of the material is in the Constitution. So it is helpful to, when you read a particular provision, 
you don't just read the provision and you don't just read the cases construing it. You also go back and say, what's the intent of the provision? What What's the the way the founders used to say is, what's the spirit of the provision? They, they meant the intent. What's, what's, the, what it's per, what's its purpose? What's the underlying understanding of this particular provision? That's legitimate. What D Justice Douglas did, however, with his per-numbers language was he essentially created a whole new constitutional clause. He said, well, um, uh, the, the founders put in the Constitution Clause A, Clause B, Clause C, and uh, in the middle is Clause X, so they must have meant Clause X, too. Well, of course, they may have put A, B, and C in the Constitution, but they didn't put Clause X in the Constitution. Right. Uh, his argument essentially was if a clause is designed to further a particular purpose, then therefore we import every other clause that could possibly <laughs> further that purpose as well. That, that's simply bad and I, I would suspect illegitimate uh, uh, legal analysis. Well, I think that uh, I went back to a, an alumni uh, meeting at the University of Chicago Law School a couple of years ago, and one of the progressive law professors tried to go through the Constitution and really try to make it look like you couldn't tell what it was saying. You know that that you so that's, and therefore the judges have to look to not only you know, modern social science, for example, and uh, try to come up with their own interpretation of what would solve the policy issue. So then constitutional interpretation becomes not just reading the history and the intent, it becomes applying progressive uh, public policy to the cases before them, and I think that's so, what we're all against. Yeah, um, with all respect, what the professor said is totally bunk. Yep. Um, almost, you see, you have to understand that two things about law professors. Number one, or three things, really. Number one, very few of them are trained in um, in the real world. Uh, very few of them have substantial practice experience right. or experience doing what they are purportedly teaching their students to do, which is to practice law, usually in a main street, uh, mainstream setting. Yep. The second thing to understand about law professors is while they have law degrees, and often very prestigious law degrees, they generally have very little training in history, which is really necessary in understanding a historical document yep. uh, like the Constitution. And number uh, three is that, and this criticism was actually uh, launched by a famous Columbia University law professor, law professors tend to prefer a good argument to a good fact. In other <laughs> words, they're lawyers and they like to uh, make cases for various things that they find pleasing and cases against things they find displeasing. And they either don't uh, ad ad adequately examine the evidence or what they do is they cherry pick the evidence. Now I'll give you one example. Some of your listeners, especially those who are constitutional wonks, may be aware that there's a provision of the Constitution called the Necessary and Proper Clause, which says that Congress will have a power to make laws that shall be necessary and proper to carry out certain other uh, powers. And for years, law professors said this, this language is utterly inscrutable. This language doesn't really mean anything. We're just going to have to interpret it the way we want to interpret it, and the way we interpret it is to give the federal government vast powers not mentioned in the Constitution. 
very, very common compl uh, uh, assertion by law professors. In 2003, as part of the projects I mentioned earlier, I noted that there had been very little convincing writing on the Necessary and Proper Clause. I also noticed that some of the great opinions on the Necessary and Proper Clause that were, that were, pre pre that were presented in uh, law school casebooks had been deceptively edited. And so I was very curious to le learn more about it. And um, the first thing I noticed, because I had practiced law for many years and most law professors did not, mm -hmm. first thing I noticed is that, gee, this look, looks a lot like a clause that I would have seen in my law practice, right. in, in, in a trust or right. in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in a power of attorney. And then I said to myself, I'll bet you that if I go back to the, to the kinds of books that the lawyers in the founding era used, I would find similar language in other documents. Right. And so I did, and I did. I found such language. I also found um, English cases right. and other sources that explained what the language meant. I wrote this up in a book that was eventually uh, published by Cambridge University Press, and that's one of the one of the sources that's been cited, um, been cited at the U.S. Supreme Court. So what you have to do, unfortunately, is kind of get your hands dusty in the old documents and study it and not just stand up and, uh, and, and, and you know, uh, sit on your own position as a law professor and make claims without evidence. And I'm afraid that that's what the professor that you're talking about yeah. did. Well, I think you're, you're on the right track because I was an undergraduate American history major, so I, I knew a lot about uh, constitutional history and the period of the founding. And then when I got to law school, I, you're right, the, the law professors, instead of being steeped in history, were looking to apply and you know economics and other social sciences uh, to whatever the outcome was supposed to be. So I found that uh, turn, turned me off a little bit. So I became a business lawyer, a corporate lawyer, and I think of the Constitution as a contract. You know, if I've drafted a contract uh, for, say, a power plant to, to sell electricity to the local utility, and it says, you know, X dollars per kilowatt hour, I don't want some con you know constitutional expert coming by. Oh, well, you know, that was the, in 1990, that might have been the right number for the electricity prices. But today, you know, the, the, and if you look at the economics of uh, the economic development of this region, we shouldn't apply it like that. Well, I'd be very upset if I was the draftsman of that contract or if I was the businessman who had built a power plant. And then somebody was telling me, no, you, the price is X, not Y. What you, even though you wrote Y, well, you know, so that I think I see the same problem with uh, interpretation of the Constitution. People don't adhere to the original intent, uh, the social contract of the American people, and they want to put in their latest progressive public policy uh, solutions. Yeah, just just to respond to that quickly. First off, there are numerous references. Uh, in the founding era record to the co to the Constitution as a compact, right. as you know, is just another meaning of the word contract. Right. Uh, not so much a compact among the states, as the old secessionists used to claim, but a compact among the American people. And uh, some of the same principles of interpretation that are used uh, in, in interpreting contracts are also principles of interpretation that those of us... Uh, who interpret the Constitution properly uh, also use it in, in, in interpreting it. There is nothing wrong with the law using um, uh, social sciences like economics, 
uh, in its analysis in certain areas. But in, the, but in constitutional law, the, the, the ratifier has already made those judgments. In other words, uh, when you're asking, you know, what's economically efficient or what's socially beneficial, that's certainly to, something to consider when you're passing statutes or when you're uh, considering a new rule of common law. But it's not appropriate for the most part. There are a few exceptions. For the most part, it's not appropriate in constitutional law because the founders already made that judgment. And if we disagree with that judgment, what we have to do is we have to amend the Constitution. But By the way, before we get too far off track here, let me just mention that since we were originally to uh, uh, discuss the Convention of States uh, issue, sure. I just told you the story about the Necessary and Proper Clause. The story that in my researches into Convention of States was in some ways a replay. I kept reading uh, articles claiming that a Convention of States was, was that um, uh, that what that was a constitutional convention, that there had only been one such convention in American history. I, I, I kept reading claims that, uh, that maybe delegates to this convention would be directly elected, other claims saying nobody knows how it would be de- uh, elected. When I started getting into the history, I found, number one, it's not a constitutional convention. It's what the Constitution calls a convention for proposing amendments. Number two, we know absolutely what it is. It's called a convention of the states. Uh, for that, we have the U.S. Supreme Court as authority, as well as many historical documents. And number three, we've had over 40 conventions of, of states in American history, most recently last year in, in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, their protocols, their procedures are very well understood. Uh, it is a it's a mechanism that works. And one of the one of the criteria for if we want to do something about the dysfunction of the federal government, one of the things we have to do is we have to ask what works. And convention of states work. Um, so that's one of the things that attracted me to the movement. Now, why is it that you uh, you say Arizona? What transpired? in Arizona that made it so ironclad as an example. Okay. Um, I mentioned that since, um, that, that over the years there have been over 40 conventions of states. And I, I'm going to answer your question by going back before, 17, before 2017. Uh, conventions were held. Convention simply means a coming together, a meeting. Meetings were held among the colonies even before independence. There were about 20 of them before, uh, uh, between uh, about 1677 and 1776, and they developed rules uh, as to how they carried out their procedures. Then, after independence in 1776, the states continued to meet in convention. Uh, those people who said that the Constitutional Convention is the only convention of states we've ever had were not only wrong, they were ludicrously wrong. Because in the in the years, uh, in the 11 years between 1776 and 1787, we'd had 11 conventions. The the, um, uh, the Constitutional Convention was the 11th one we'd had since independence. And again, the rules very well understood. We had additional conventions, either of some states or um, or, or or national in nature. We've had them in 1814. We had one in. 1850, we had two in 1861, we had one in 1889, we had one in 1922, we had several in 30s and 40s, and then we had a gap 
for about 60 years until 2017 when the state of Arizona called a convention for Phoenix to set rules for, for a future uh, convention for proposing amendments. The idea was that, you know, we had the rules from the past, but we needed updating. They needed discussion. They wanted the states to be more comfortable with this procedure. And so what the Phoenix Convention of August of last year did was essentially come up with a, a system of, of rules that a later convention can can borrow from. They don't have to follow them, but they can borrow from. Okay. Well, so, uh, and, and in addition to that, there have been a number of, of, uh, of groups of state legislatures who have been working on this procedure uh, over the past decade or so, so that when... Uh, the convention of states movement is successful, and we have a convention, it's not going to be reinventing the wheel. They'll, they'll be able to adopt a set of rules, hit the ground running, and start considering amendments. Okay, so the next question would be, what would your suggestion be for how many representatives in each state would you consider the same number for each state? You mean the number of delegates from each state yeah, to the convention? Yeah, or what we call, I believe we're supposed to call them commissioners, not delegates. Okay. history. I was the one who recommended that we use the term commissioners for two reasons. One, it's more historically accurate. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it makes it clear that this is a proceeding very different from most conventions. I mean, today you've got conventions at the American Medical Association, right. and the American Bar Association, and your national party conventions. That's not the kind of meeting we're talking about. We're talking about something more like a, a, a gathering of sovereignties, like, you know, the, like the Congress of Vienna in the 19th century. Um, or the, the gatherings that uh, that were held uh, after World War II among ambassadors. It, it's more like that. So the commissioners get together, and they each one represents uh, uh, his or her state, uh, and then they vote by state, one state, one vote. Now, although one state only gets one vote, how many commissioners each state sends is entirely up to it. So in the 18... In the 1850 convention held in Nashville, Tennessee, um, mo most of the states just sent one, two, three, four commissioners, but Tennessee sent 100. Oh, my God. Which was way, way over the top, but of course, Tennessee still only got one vote. Right. And so one of the things that we recommend is that each convention adopt a rule saying, you know, you can send how many you, you wish. That's, that's your right as a sovereign, but you can only have three of them or five of them on the floor at a time. Now, given that we have 50 states, that means this convention is going to be larger than some of the earlier, than all of the other uh, conventions of states. So under those circumstances, I would recommend that, uh, that the limit be set at three or at most five, because otherwise it becomes unwieldy. Well, I, I personally uh, uh, prefer three. And at a simulation in, in 2016 that you made reference to earlier, a simulated convention of states in, in Williamsburg, Virginia, right. uh, they limited to three commissioners from each, each state, and that worked great. Well, that's good because here in Florida, we're working. Uh, Gene Cloud with the Convention of States Project is leading a committee to work with the Speaker of the House to see how we set up the uh, selection of commissioners. And it's good yeah. to know that you think three to five. We he, we may go back to you on that as we uh, the project moves along. Uh, that's very interesting. Also, I'm looking at our uh, chart here of the 12 past states, and I'm happy to see that uh, Arizona is also one of the past states. Uh, Florida was number three, Georgia number one, 
and Arizona was about number nine. Uh, Texas is number 11. So there are 12 states that have already passed the resolution to require Congress to call a convention, and uh, we're all working on to make sure that once that call is made, uh, we have an effective way of doing it. Um, yes, um, th- that's right, and I'm glad you're working with your state legislators on that subject. Historically, um, there have been a number of ways that, that uh, commissioners have been selected, uh, and you can pretty much you can pretty much pick off a menu. It's up to the state legislature, however. Right. The state legislature makes the determination. Um, most commissioners historically have simply been selected by the state legislature. And that makes some sense because you're looking you, – the, the limits of the convention have already been set. For example, the Convention of States application, the, the application from the Convention of States movement, is limited to um, – imposing financial restraints on the federal government, uh, limiting federal power and jurisdiction, and imposing term limits. Yep. And so that the agenda is already set. The political decision is already made. So what you need in a commissioner is somebody who's good at compromise and wheeling and dealing, and you need somebody who's good at drafting. In other words, somebody who's been around the, around the pike. You and who will be... You don't need some demagogue who comes up and says, you know, I want to be your commissioner. You need a professional. However, if the if the legislature decided, well, we're going to let the governor appoint, it, appoint them, a legislature could do that. If they say that we'll, we'll want the people to elect them, the legislature can do that. Uh, the legislature can say, well, uh, the, the commissioners have to be nominated by the Senate, approved by the House, whatever. The mechanisms are all up to there, uh, up to them, and the particular selection procedure is really a matter for the states. That's, that's federalism in action. Right. Now, let me ask you a related question. In, in connection with uh, doing research for this uh, topic, I, I ran into some memos written by the Congressional Research Service, and I'm still trying to yeah. get their author to appear on our program. He hasn't answered my uh, emails, but uh, one of the points he, he claimed initially, and I think he's backed off from that, is that Congress would have a major role in, in terms of setting the agenda for this convention. It's it's not just a matter of Congress shall call and then it goes off, but that what, what do you think the role of Congress in this convention to propose amendments would be? When I got involved in this business and first started looking at the literature, um, I saw that many people had said that, that law professors who had not investigated the history said that, well, Congress could decide how the, quote, delegates are selected and Congress could set the agenda. Uh, that is that that is unquestionably false. Um, again, we know this is a convention of the states. The U.S. Supreme Court has recognized it as a convention of the states. Uh, the historical documents all point to it as a convention of the states, and that means that the uh, that the um, states set the agenda, and they set the agenda in the resolutions they pass for the establishment of the convention. Also, I learned in my historical studies that when you call a convention, the call is essentially a limited document. First off, what you do is, um, in the case of a convention for proposing amendments, Congress is limited to the topics that states have applied to, applied for. Um, what, that means that Congress can't call a convention on anything if it wants, or if it did, it wouldn't be a valid amendments convention. Okay. Uh, what what Congress can do is they can they can set the initial time and place of meeting, um, 
and um, then they can define the subject matter according to the state resolutions. And that's about all they can do. Now, of course, what they could do is they could say, well, we're going to call this convention for 1 a.m. on December 31st of next year in Nome, Alaska. Mm. Uh, they could, I suppose, do that, but then the convention then takes over. Once they convene, the convention then can decide they want to move wherever they wish. Yep. They can adopt the rules they wish, but they still have to remain within the set agenda. Okay, so for example, when you say remain within the set agenda, in the case of the Convention of States project, uh, the three proposed amendments are fiscal responsibility, limiting federal jurisdiction, and term limits. What about, what if the uh, commissioners wanted to consider a fourth amendment, which would be, for example, repealing the 17th Amendment? That would be out of order. Okay. Uh, that would be out of order. What they could do if they wanted to is once they adjourned, right. they could meet as an informal body and make a recommendation. But the recommendation would have no legal force. Um, it would be, let me give you an example. In 1861... Um, there was what we call a general convention, meaning a convention of the entire country, uh, of all the states that had not yet seceded. It was held in Washington, D.C., and its purpose was to propose a constitutional amendment. But it had not been called under Article 5 of the Constitution. So it came up with a proposed amendment. It drafted an amendment. The purpose was to, to stave off the Civil War, and then they sent it to Congress as a recommendation. But it did not have any legal force. Right. In order for the... Um, in order for the proposal that comes from the convention to have legal force, they've got to follow the procedures outlined in the Constitution, and those procedures are those that are expressly in the Constitution and those procedures which are uh, come from historical practice, which are impliedly adopted in the Constitution. Let me just explain that for a minute, because sometimes people misunderstand that. There have been many, many cases uh, issued by the courts interpreting Article 5 of the Constitution. And what the courts do, uh, the courts don't always do this, but they certainly do it in the area of Article 5, is they follow historical practice closely. They will say that the terms in Article 5 are to be understood historically, the procedural uh, methods in Article 5 are to be understood historically. And so when I say something like, uh, the convention is a convention of states. It doesn't have the word convention of states in the Constitution, but it was the universal understanding that that's what it, that's what it was. Right. And so we uh, – I'll give you a good example. The Constitution uses the word habeas corpus. You know, how, how do we know what habeas corpus is? We know because we have a vast amount of historical precedent, and we have the founder's own statement as to what historic, historic, uh, habeas corpus is. That's exactly the case with Article 5 as well. There's some people out there who try to prevent, pr pretend that Article 5 is meaningless or you know, doesn't have any content, and, and that those folks are just wrong. There was real animosity, I think, initially from Congress uh, until this new movement started. Uh, you could see going back to the 50s, some of the uh, general counsel of the congressional committees were very negative that, you know, no, they said nothing could be done without congressional participation and approval. So at least uh, this new movement in the last few years has certainly shifted that ground. And uh, I'll let you know if I'm able to get in touch with the guy from the Congressional Research Service. Yeah, I've, 
I've corresponded with him. Okay. Uh, let me just say that the Congressional Research Service, first off, isn't what it used to be. Okay. Uh, co- members of Congress don't rely upon it as much. I don't think their staff is as uh, extensive or their resources uh, as copious as they used to be. And so I don't think the quality of the work product is always top-notch. So um, when I think their 2012 report came out on the subject, I corresponded right. with the fellow who wrote that report, pointed out where he was right, where he was wrong. Yep. And you sort of just hinted that he might be moving in the right direction. And I think that's because the evidence has become hard to deny. Right. Now, I don't want to be seen as taking too much credit here. It is true that I started the modern spate of research on the subject. But other other scholars also with very good constitutional credentials have also looked at the evidence and, and arrived with, with minor variation. They've arrived at the same conclusion I have. Right. Um, uh, for, for example, uh, professor, very well-respected constitutional law professor uh, named Michael, Michael Rappaport, who was at the University of San Diego, uh, wrote an article in 2012 on uh, the constitu- um, on the on the uh, Constitution's uh, provision for a convention for proposing amendments and reached many of the same conclusions I have. So um, it, it, it's not that I'm alone on this. Right. You will sometimes see the claim made that, uh, for example, that, quote, constitutional scholars claim that uh, such a convention could not be controlled. I, I don't think there's anybody who's written on this issue since... 2010 who believes that i mean nobody really believes that anymore that's just that's just rhetoric one 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 thing also we might talk about because it's really easy to get bogged down in the procedures here is why do this i mean what what's the end game what what do we want to accomplish um through this mechanism well in, in my personal opinion uh, when I first attended the simulation in uh, in Tampa, which is basically a little town called Sanford in 2015, I was under the assumption that it was quite possible of repealing 16 and 17 since it was the, the horror of 1913. And I'm really disappointed that that's not even in the, within the purview. So uh, since Congress won't do this themselves and, and, uh, and the people might really uh, flub this as well in a convention... Uh, for instance, uh, how would you suggest the wording of the balanced budget amendment to prevent a majority uh, party of government raising taxes to 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 unforeseen levels like we saw post World War II to balance the budget and have a constitutional mandate yeah. to raise taxes in yeah. the eighty percentile? How is it you would? Yeah. Write a, a balanced budget amendment to, to, uh, yeah. that to avoid happened that. In, that happened in Illinois recently where they were kind of forced to raise uh, taxes to in order to balance their budget because they had a balanced budget amendment. So we have to word that carefully. What what would your suggestions be on something like that? Well, um, if you go to um, independenceinstitute.org and you enter Rob Nadelson, you'll see that I have a blog page it's or, or to go to the Constitutional Studies page. And I've actually proposed a, uh, a constitutional, uh, excuse me, a, a balanced budget amendment. Um, this is, your question is a very good one, because a balanced budget amendment is a, is a particularly difficult one to draft. Some of the amendments that I would like to see um, are 
pretty easy to draft. I, I you know, what, for example, term limits, once you agree what the term limit is, it's fairly easy to draft yep. the term limit amendment. We've already got one in the Constitution. It's right. called the 22nd Amendment, and it limits the terms of the president. Uh, and uh, it's something we've already done that. You know, for the president, why not do it for the Supreme Court? Why not do it for Congress? But a balanced budget amendment is difficult to draft, and but we do have a lot of experience in the states. Some, almost all the states have some kind of balanced budget provisions, but some are better than others. And so we can borrow from state uh, experience. Uh, there's going to be a lot of discussion on this issue. The pr particular proposal that I suggested was to require approval of the majority of the state legislatures uh, containing state from states with a majority of the population to approve any increase in the debt limit you know we have something called the debt limit right yes and and if you if you don't increase the debt limit you're necessarily balancing your budget when, when people complain about oh we can't raise the debt limit we're going to have a crisis when you don't raise the, the debt limit all that means is you're running a balanced budget so instead of allowing Congress to simply raise the debt limit whenever it wants, meaning increase the deficit whenever it wants, or increase the debt, uh, what we do is we have a provision which says that a majority of state legislatures containing a majority of the population have to approve any increase in the debt limit. It, if you've got a war or a severe economic dislocation, you know the states will go along. If they want to raise the debt limit simply for the purpose of uh, – you know, spending more money on um, Obamacare, then probably the states won't go along. So it's a, uh, it, it's one. I'm not suggesting that my proposal is the be end or or, or end all, but the, the the point here is that there are there are proposals out there for a balanced budget amendment uh, of varying quality, and the convention, um, the convention commissioners will will select among them. Now, you don't believe it in maybe tying the debt to a national standard like uh, tying the debt to a percentage of uh, GDP? No, I don't, I don't agree with that. Because they, they can fudge that number? The reason I don't, no, the reason I don't agree with that is um, I've done a lot of research uh, into the fiscal history of the states. And when you tie spending or taxing or other fiscal measures to... Um, to income or to other economic measures, that tends to become a floor, not a ceiling. They're going to start there and then find ways to raise beyond that. How they do that varies by state, but I'm telling you that's what the record is. So uh, the other thing is I see no need to preemptively give to the federal government a certain percentage of the economy. In other words, I want the federal government to do the, its constitutional job the best way, the most efficiently as it can consistent with the rule of law, consistent with the Constitution. I don't just want to say, okay, federal government, here's 19% of GDP. You got it. And if you want more, come back to us. Yeah, right. that's that an, doesn't strike me as a good point. Good. That's, a, that's a fantastic point. It's probably the heroic uh, comment of the, of the whole uh, interview. And we really just have, like Ed said in, in emails, you know, we, we, we love this conversation tremendously. It's uh, really enlightening. Now, when it comes to term limits, is it true that uh, the the last amendment that was took two hundred and what four years to pass or two hundred and three years to pass, our last amendment wasn't somewhat relatable to 
pay increases of congressmen who had to actually go through a re-election process before they could benefit from their pay re- uh, pay increases. Uh, why did it take so long, and why why was it even considered after all this time? Um, Great that- question. Great question. You're referring to the 27th Amendment. Correct. It was part of the original Bill of Rights that came out of Congress. The original Bill of Rights uh, was 12 amendments, not 10. The first one had to do with the apportionment of the House of Representatives. The second one was this provision which said that if Congress wants to raise its own pay, the pay increase has to become effective after an election has intervened. Now, at the time, uh, they went ahead and they, they, uh, the states ratified the other ten amendments. So the original Third Amendment became the first, the original Fourth Amendment became the second, and so forth. And, um, but they did not get sufficient states to ratify the, the original first or the original second. And it, the question fell into, historical, into a historical dis- dustbin uh, until in the late 1980s, there was a great, great deal of anger at the way Congress had been raising its own pay. And so some folks in Ohio, I believe, uh, found this amendment and noted that it had never been fully ratified, that some states had approved it, but had not been fully ratified. Um, it was the, the ratifications were not were, were still valid. I mean, when, when a law is passed, you know, or a resolution is passed, it stays effective indefinitely unless it's repealed or unless it's time limited. And these ratifications were not time limited. The amendment itself was not time limited. It, it didn't say, as some have, this amendment must be approved within, two, within uh, seven years. And so these ratifications were all valid. So they started a campaign to get enough other states to ratify it. And sure enough, they got 38 states to ratify it, and it became the 27th. It became the 27th Amendment. So that's the story. It's an inspiring story of of citizen activism. By the way, one question that sometimes comes up is: a, Is this really going to work? Is this amendment process really going to work? And the answer to that is a resounding yes. It offers two big advantage advantages. Number one, it, it's pretty permanent. You know. Um, you think back to the, um, uh, you know, every year we get politicians saying to us, oh, you got to vote in this election. It's a critical election. You're threatened by such and such. Once you pass a constitutional amendment, that stays effective and it may stay effective for centuries. A, a great example is the, um, is, is the, the, the 22nd Amendment. It was adopted about 60 years ago, limits the term of the president. Nobody seriously tried to break that since that time. And so we don't have to argue over, you know, is this president entitled to a third term? Is this president entitled to a fourth term? That's off the radar screen. So if, for example, we pass a constitutional amendment saying that, uh, that, uh, uh, that, that, that Congress should not interfere in a certain segment of the, of the economy, then it becomes part of the Constitution. We don't have to argue about it. Yes, um, that's a lot of energy. Year after year. The, the, second, the second thing is that amendments work. They work sometimes better than the original Constitution. Think, for example, the First Amendment. I mean, what would life be like if there were no protections in the Constitution for freedom of speech, freedom of the press, and so forth? Now, you may say that they've been weakened over years. Perhaps that's true. But the fact is that the First Amendment still has teeth more than 200 years after it was adopted, and it serves a valuable purpose. 
There were folks who opposed adopting the First Amendment who said, oh, it's really not necessary, oh, it's really not, it's really not going to work, et cetera, et cetera. Thank God those people got, got overridden because they were wrong. The First Amendment has been a blessing to American life. So amendments are something that last. They're a permanent solution, or at least as permanent as anything is in politics. And secondly, they, they, it, it's a workable way of attacking a problem rather than trying to deal with it every single election all over again. Okay, now, um, uh, the evidence, uh, and I've discussed this with uh, uh, Mark Meckler, the evidence is pretty clear that term limits in the states hasn't been very effective. It's created a, a basically uh, musical chairs between the House and the Senate. Uh, all the politicians just, once they do their, their term limit in one house, they go to the Senate. Uh, it creates a lot of uh, amateurism in terms of elected bodies. What makes this convention of for proposing amendments so sure that term limits, which I I like to separate my comment from uh, the Supreme Court, I believe in term limits for uh, justices, but in in Congress, where so so much so much evidence shows that right now the federal government is being run by a bunch of proxy bureaucrats that are there forever misinforming newly elected representatives and senators, why would why would we want to term them out uh, just when they've, you know, after two or three terms, uh, I don't see the benefit. Uh, there's just so much misinformation now terming senators out. I mean, I understand the, the extreme cases where uh, you they're have senators yeah, yeah. there for 20 years, they're there for 30 years. I, I mean, just recently in the hearing, you saw the... The mm-hmm. ones that have been there forever, the, yep. the, the, the the pompous nature of being there so long to be actually be able to say— The longer they're there, the worse they get. Yeah, uh, yeah two of them yeah. were actually able to say, I've approved, <laughs> I've nominated every single Supreme Court justice so alive today. You yeah. know, that means you're there too long. I understand well, that. It, it, you know, in, in part, you've answered your own argument. <laughs> um, I mean— you don't have to have very short-term limits. Say, for example, the House of Representatives could be 12 years. It doesn't have to be six. Right. Uh, first, I like I like I like the term limit uh, provision in the Convention of States application because it does include, say, Supreme Court justices. Right. This is a classic example of how the the um, uh, amendment process can be used to deal with new circumstances. We've passed a number of different amendments that take into account the fact that there have been technological changes. There also have been life expectancy changes. You know, when the when the Constitution was adopted, the life expectancy was, for, if a man reached reached adulthood, then his life expectancy maybe was to about age 55 or 60. The, 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 the Supreme Court justices appointed in the 1790s lasted an average of only eight years on the court. Today, Supreme Court justices are serving an average of 25 years. And so one thing that this Convention of States application gives us an option of doing is saying, look, we recognize the need for judicial independence. We recognize the need for a judge to have a reasonably long term, but it's going to be 20 years and then out or 18 years and then out, or 12 years and then out. So one long term. Now, as the, you can also, of course, term limit bureaucrats. The other, uh, the other aspect goes to, uh, goes to members of Congress. 
Uh, I've seen some of the studies on term limits in the state. I disagree that they haven't worked. I think, for example, that term limit term limited state legislatures tend to be more fiscally conservative than than state legislatures that are not uh, not term limited. Um, Agreed. I think that I think that the additional information that people that that legislators get from serving a long time, that's a good thing, but that tends to be offset by the fact that it also gives them time to establish uh, cozy relationships with with lobbyists. That's why lobbyists don't like term limits, because they like having cozy relationships. And it doesn't bother me at all that that legislators move to different offices. You know, when you move from the House and the Senate, you've got to face a different electorate. When you move uh, from one office to another, you bring with it your accumulated experience. I saw, uh, I, I served my uh, my career as a law professor over 24 years in Montana, and I saw Montana before term limits, and I saw Montana after term limits. Before term limits, uh, there were a group of four or five state senators who used to get, get every morning, they were called the old bulls, four or five state senators who had been in the Senate since uh, Adam and Eve, <laughs> and they would get together, in a, they would get together in a poker room of a poker game in the morning, and they would decide what the legislature was going to decide. That got broken up by term limits. Some of the people who were termed out ran for other offices. They went, they became county county commissioners, or they ran for state auditor or whatever. And when they did it, they brought with them for, uh, their accumulated experience from the legislature. Yeah, in those cases, uh, I understand. Yeah, when I when I when I meant yeah. other branches of government. I misspoke. I was actually talking about the houses, uh, House and Senate, back and yeah. forth. Uh, you, they really but, can't go back, and they can't go forth. I, I grew I, up in Chicago, and in 1978, you can draft your term limits amendment in a way. Uh, for example, there's there's one gentleman I know who has drafted a term limits amendment which says 18 years in Congress. Uh, he says, I don't care whether it's in the House or the Senate, 18 years in Congress. So if you want to run for the Senate for 12 years, and then uh, you want to switch, go down to the House for and, and, and run repeatedly, that's okay. But it's 18 years. So there are a v- variety of ways of structuring it, which take advantage of the uh, benefits of term limits and avoid the disadvantages. Okay. I, uh, this is one question. That's, uh, this is probably the only opportunity I'm ever going to have uh, to, to get some feedback on this. Um, I wrote uh, a book. Uh, about reinventing the country as opposed to reforming the country. I, I think we're beyond reform at this point. So one of the ideas, what would you say about an, uh, a proposition where the term limit is tied to attendance in Congress, which forces the congressman and the senator to actually attend the House and the Senate? Instead as opposed of spending to, all their time raising money for re-election. Yeah, like uh, I'm really annoyed when I turn on C-SPAN and see a senator or a congressman talking to absolutely nobody, it seems really insulting considering they're on the on the taxpayer's dime. How do you feel about uh, a minimum standard of attendance in order to run for re-election? In other words, you have to meet a certain attendance, like a child has to be sitting down when the bell rings. I believe a senator and a congressman should be sitting down in their chair when the gavel is slammed, even though they have to attend committee meetings and stuff like that. That and could be scheduled. Money. And, they, and well, can be forcing them to attend committee committee meetings would certainly <clears throat> discourage a number of them from running for for office. I suppose. Um, you know, I've not actually uh, considered that particular amendment. <coughs> I can see advantages and disadvantages. 
I think many members of Congress would simply point out that those committee hearings and other sessions that you see are not where the decisions are made. And so putting them there uh, is unlikely to uh, really uh, change their effectiveness. On the other hand... But it would discourage them from being there for 30 years. You could make the argument that if they are there, that that's where the decisions would be made. But that's the kind of discussion we need to have. We need people thinking about how we're going to fix this dysfunctional system, how we're going to deal with our debt, how we're going to stop federal abuse. Yes. The only only way of doing that effectively, I think, is through the Convention of States process. Now, do you feel that back in the day, because they they were likely to sit in the chambers, that they actually had more face-to-face debate like we see at the in the, in the United Kingdom, where they actually stop uh, stabbing each other in the back and at least stab each other in the front and actually Yell face other, their right? face their opposition <clears throat> and, and debate for Christ's sake and let the people hear them debate. I I'm always impressed when I get an opportunity to see the House of Commons actually do battle in there face-to-face. You know, you don't really backstab each other you go right at each other and you know sometimes they are very hard on the prime minister right in their face what I, if- I got, you know I, I got bad news for you but that's <laughs> largely choreographed i mean they, they the prime minister knows what he or she is going to say uh the the, prime, the members of the prime minister's party know what they're going to say and support the opposition knows what they're going to say and who is going to say it uh, so it's great theater, and it does serve a very educational function, I think, for the public, but that's not where the decisions are made in Parliament. Okay, so in, in this country, uh, having so many uh, congressmen, uh, over 450 of them, um, standing up and, and, and debating, just you don't think it will work because the nation is just too large? Uh, debate on the floor of Congress, uh, almost no, but almost never actually persuades people. There are very rare occasions where it does, but that's not where the action takes place. Well, the Kavanaugh hearings were a good example of that. Nobody was persuaded there one way or the other. Yeah. So um, it's a system. This is why, among the many reasons why people are so dissatisfied with Congress, Congress is obviously not going to reform itself. My decision to sign up with the, with the Convention of States movement is a recognition of that, that if we're going to improve things, we're going to have to do it through the mechanism the founders gave us to uh, reform the system. Well, I, I, th- um, I guess with that closing argument, is there anything that you uh, have on your mind that's like a heavy heart statement for us? Because it's... Uh... Uh, I can't thank you enough for uh, for calling, you know, WSQF 94.5 FM here in South Florida. And we're here with uh, Robert Nadelson. And uh, if you would like to uh, close out our conversation, uh, feel free. You have the floor. Sure. Number one, another shameless commercial advertisement for those people interested in the Constitution that would like to know what it actually means. I have a book on the subject available through Amazon.com, the original Constitution, what it actually said and meant. Um, For those people who want to enlist in the growing army to reform our federal government for our future generation, check out conventionofstates.org. It's conventionofstates.org. Sign up and uh, find out out what you can do to, to, to make change happen. Well, thank you very much yeah. for your call. And uh, Ed, would you like yeah. to... Thank you very much, Professor Nadelson. We really appreciate it, and uh, we'd like to keep in touch. And uh, on uh, on Monday, October 1st, it's going to be the first uh, day of the new term of the Supreme Court. Hopefully, Justice Kavanaugh will be 
uh, in there. So we we're planning to have several constitutional scholars call in each for, each of you for like ten or fifteen minutes, and we'd like you to have you call in and tell us what you think of the new term and what you think of the new lineup in the Supreme Court. Uh, one of the points that I've seen from some of the professors I follow at the University of Chicago is that they say that now that Kennedy is gone, the middle swing justice is Chief Justice Roberts. And uh, that could be uh, very uh, decisive. In addition, there's concern that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is not in very good shape and uh, maybe the Trumpster will get another uh, nomination in the near future. Okay, great. It's been a pleasure talking to you guys. Thank you. Thank you, thank thank you, you very, very much. much. Well, All right. That was that a was, real professor. That was great. Yes. Uh, again, we'd like to thank uh, Robert Nadelson, professor of con- constitutional law at the University of Montana. And he was uh, one of the early, uh, I guess, uh, philosophical yeah, power the, behind the, the Convention of States. He did the research. He, he looked things up, and that's worth a lot. Well, it was, it was I finally, uh, <clears throat> I rest my soul on my punch in, punch out. Yeah. So it has. It See, that's ha- why you have to expose your ideas. Because you'd be surprised. A yep. person who's thought about it hasn't thought about that idea. Absolutely. About attendance uh, thresholds to run for re-election. Because the idea is to discourage. Yeah, no, I hear you. Uh, the the Jim uh, the Jim Carrey, excuse me, the senator carries from doing absolutely nothing, sponsoring absolutely right. nothing, doing nothing, and then had the audacity to run for president, and he did nothing except for eat ketchup with his steak. You know, yeah. because he married the Heinz family, and these are the this is what's wrong with our government is these numb nuts uh, get elected, and they just stay there forever. Right. And what do we react? Well, incumbency is like um, the Constitution bans titles of nobility, and incumbency has become like a title of nobility, and it's very hard to knock off. An incumbent. But in the process, they become numb to the people's I agree. desires That's right. and the interests. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So the more power they have, the longer they're there, they're more likely they are to ignore the wishes of their constituents. And I was going to give them the example. I grew up in Chicago in 1978. I uh, graduated from college, started law school. I was a, a poll watcher for a state representative being elected from the south side of Chicago, Hyde Park. Barbara Flynn Curry. She's still there. 40 years later, Wow. she is the majority leader of the uh, Democrat. That's back when I was a Democrat. I was a conservative Democrat. But she's still there 40 years later. And what that's is it, just what unbelievable. What is it with these reformed Democrats that, uh, right. that end up being almost our, our, the, our best conservatives? Uh, I, so I was always a conservative. I was a Scoop Jackson Democrat. Irving Crystal was a Democrat. All these... Uh, all these guys. Oh, my gosh. Here we have our team calling in. They've got to be pretty excited. You're listening to WSQF 94.5 with the Concrete Conservative, Ed Vidal, and yours truly, Mac on the Rock. How can I help you? Hi, this is Keith. I wanted to thank you guys for that excellent class that Professor Nadelson just provided. There you go. And you thought we were not a serious constitutional program. No, that was... Uh... I have to give you kudos. You guys both were serious for like an hour straight. Not only that, but we got more insight on Amendment 17, and we have got tremendous eureka moment how important Amendment 17 was tied to a convention of states. Yep. They got so close <laughs> that the Congress reacted, which is discouraging to think that the, the American people were that 
dumb. Well, no, but the to, progressive to, movement was very strong then in both parties. Okay, but the whole time I was, I really wanted my conspiracy theory to hold true that it was a scam, a tie to the income tax and the bankers and the whole, you well, know. Well, I think it's it's good from an intellectual point of view that there is an intellectual tie between the 16th and the 17th, but there may not have been a tactical connection. Right. But- I'm, the, I'm, I'm really uh, disappointed that the people were just not right. Well, people were, that was the mood in those days. It was a, there was on. a sense that government was going to help you. Uh, there was a social gospel movement started And in more discouraging is that we can't repeal it. Ninth, and we can't repeal it based on our purviews. Right. I so, never understood why the states let that through. You know, why would a state vote for that? Yeah, it's not only the states, it was the, the masses of people. Yeah, I, he said 90%, and I think he's probably right. Wow. People really wanted it. There, this was during a progressive movement. There was an idea that government was going to help you. Uh, that's when we got all the zoning laws, another example. Uh, and so this that was, was real. It's a real stand in your corner moment for me personally, since I'm a first generation immigrant. I'm you're real, not an immigrant. You were born here. Yes, yeah, excuse me. I'm uh, the son of first generation. He's trying to, you know. Yeah. No, I, I don't try to do anything. Believe me, the last thing I want to do is be, uh, uh, you know, uh, to be. I got enough problems to deal with it to call myself an immigrant thank you for correcting me so you're a first generation immigrant (laughs) excuse me i'm projecting onto you but i feel like standing in a corner and saying you know uh i really was i feel embarrassed that uh i had to be told basically you know stay in your lane you're not repealing the 17th amendment well don't worry i mean the american electorate has made other mistakes for example, prohibition was a constitutional amendment. That was probably the worst constitutional amendment. Yeah, that was amendment. just totally brain dead. And it, that it was, sla- it and was slavery. corrected 12 years later. So yeah, at, at least back then they realized they needed an amendment to do that. And right. They respect there. today. There would be like a five to four Supreme Court decision finding a right uh, to prohibition in the uh, penumbras and emanations of the Constitution. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's last week talking about the tie between 16 and 17. Like without the uh, income tax, 17 would have been difficult to. Right, that was a good point. Been money to do it. So yeah, those these are these are the eureka moments for me, and I also uh, I've got solace to the fact that it's not completely uh, out of the out of consideration of encouraging and forcing upon Congress to actually get back into the floor and start discussing matters in public instead of yep. behind the scenes and in committee meetings. But you saw those Kavanaugh hearings. It's all like yeah, antics. Uh, yeah, kind of like what he said about the House of Commons, that it's all rehearsed. Right. And, and uh, that's true, but that is kind of, <laughs> in a way... Oh, that's good. That's, uh, there's a they certain... They really hearings. They didn't, they didn't do hearings. I listened to Chris Ann a couple of days ago in our podcast. She said that the, the senators are not interested in interviewing Kavanaugh. They're, right. They don't care about his constitutional fitness. They just want another photo op for their next campaign. Yeah, but see, don't you under, don't you see what I'm seeing? That we're permitting them to be mediocre by the way we've not we've structured this in a manner in which they're allowed to just take sides. They're not they're not even encouraged to reach across the aisle because we can't stand each other based on the rules that they've created for themselves to create black and white teams like blue and red teams. Right. That's what you And have. guess what? The only way to change that, I'm sorry to say, is to put them in a big room together all the time where they exhaust themselves 
Because guess what? You have to le- raise the level of your game when you're being ridiculed in public by the other side. Literally, imagine Ted Cruz having the whole Senate to himself all the time whenever he wanted to grab well, the microphone. The, the problem, though, is that these senators are so shameless that they don't mind being ridiculed. Look at Cory Booker. I'm not I so mean, sure. I think under this— Spartacus, under, give under, me a break. Under the present rules, you get away with a lot because you're never in the Senate in front of your— you never called on things? You never called in front of the whole body. Right, right, right. Remember, you can be called on something so disparagingly that might get you knocked off Come a committee. Come on, Harris. You should see the, the, the L.A. Times and the San Francisco Chronicle, uber-liberal newspapers on the West Coast. They both, even they thought that Kamala Harris was totally lame in her questioning of Kavanaugh. But, but you know? Ed, nobody even reads. Well. You know what I, I mean? People like you and I, I I'm, I'm guilty. I'm, I believe I you read more than I do. I believe Keith can speak for himself. Oh yeah, but don't think that people reader. are don't think people are reading today. You need well, to be videotaped. If they see a video clip of Kamala Harris asking her dumb questions about whether Kavanaugh had knew somebody at some law firm. They will. Yeah, think, that was know, pretty tacky. That was who? Where did this uh, young lady come from? I think that's the reason to not vote for him. Yeah, like like you can't confirm him. It's like all the Democrats, like pretty much all of them, think he's the he's the devil himself, and then the Republicans all act like he's the best thing since sliced bread. Yeah, well, yeah but even good. then, even then, I see that in that rhetoric, it's kind of bush leagueish. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no intellect anymore, and when you don't show an example of where intellect is displayed, mm-hmm. where are you planning to find it? Because we even agree, uh, based on our conversation with Mr. Nadelson, that even professors aren't really intellectual. Absolutely. Well, they're driven by their political ideology, right. their religious views, and, and so he said on. it themselves. They, yes, they, they get a salary, it. and they don't practice law. Right. They don't practice law, or they were failed at practicing law, and then they went to become law professors. Kind of like a high school yeah, teacher. Don't care about the Constitution or the, I wrote down a quote. I thought it was a great one that uh, Rob Adelson said. Uh, he said, constitutional law professors prefer a good argument over good fact. Right. Yeah, you know who uh, who's going to call in and say he, he that was his quote, John. John said that a couple of times. John Lofgren? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's going to he say it? that one's his. Did he get it from Rob? I don't think so, but I, I know that he said it well, several times. The other thing he said was that they're not, they don't really study the history of the language and the rules that are coming up, and that you really have to know that. You have to know where they came from, and especially Anglo-American legal history goes back, like he said, to the Middle Ages, the start of the the common law, the courts, the parliament. And so you really have to study that. And a lot of contemporary well, he's got, professors... Well, he's got that book he wrote that we, yep, we're going to yep, have yep. to... Uh, a lot of contemporary professors, they're not looking at the history. How did we get here? They look at, you know, the latest... How can we change how we got here? <laughs> public policy, behavioral economics, uh, you know, nudging people to do the, quote, right thing. See, a lot of the, a lot of the contemporary professors, especially progressives, they have this idea that... Uh, people can be uh, changed. The human nature can be nudged in one way or the other by right policy. And so they start playing with the rules and they don't pay attention to the historical tradition of how we got here. And that's how we get a lot of policies that are counterproductive. They have un- unintended consequences and they and make things worse. how about the worse. duplicative policies? How about policies that are duplicated and right. they apply to different departments within the federal government? And that's government. because they're looking at you know tinkering uh, behavioral science and uh, try to nudge people and, and give create incentives for what they think. There was a law, uh, an economics professor at the University of Chicago Law School who won the Nobel Prize, Ronald Coase, and he said 
uh, gosh darn it, economists today need to go out there and look at the empirical evidence. He said, if you want to study horses, you want to write an article about the economics of horses, go to Arlington Track Racetrack, go to uh, Lincoln Park and look at the stables, go to the police academy or the police department, look at the horses there. Don't lock yourself up in your office and say, if I were a horse, what would I do? (laughs) And he said... (laughs) Now, Keith, what did you think about tying the balanced budget amendment to debt? And uh, we didn't get into detail. I would love to have a conversation just about that. I suggested... uh, what did he think about, not that it was, that I like the idea because I believe uh, the government fudges numbers all the time, like unemployment, uh, I don't believe it's at three something. I believe it's much higher than that, but they're selling well, there's that. different measures of unemployment. Yeah, because so there's there's U6. a lot of people that just will not work, so therefore it's got to be higher. If you, if you try to give them a math problem to set up the, uh, the balanced budget against, they're just going to manipulate the numbers. So right, the way right. that's a good so point. I, but... I don't think personally that would work. Right, and he agreed with you. you got to figure out a way to limit how much money they spend. Right, so the debt limit, yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting to. What is it you think, what would be the option, uh, what standard could uh, standard measurement could you use? It would have to be percent of what? Of well, the uh, last year's budget? Typically, economists think of percent of GDP. Yeah, well, that's why we suggested and he maximum. He, and he agree. I agree with him. He's, you know, that's like giving the government twenty percent off the bat that they don't deserve right, and have right. earned. I agree. So they just manipulate the way they calculate the GDP, right? Like they do with the unemployment. If you make, if you base something on the unemployment figures, then they'll screw around with the unemployment calculation formula. So that one's a I, big open-ended question. Yep. I believe that that's already written somewhere, and we just need to find out who's. Whose writings have gotten... Well, it's interesting. He's looked at different state legislatures, because almost every state in America has a balanced budget amendment Well, they don't sort. print money, so it's kind of easier. That's, that's a big plus. Big plus. Yeah, yes, they that's... They can't print, and it's harder for them to borrow. Yeah, so right. they, they, they're they restrained by the debt limit in a way. Jersey, right. Well, I guess that's where he's getting... That's probably the answer to the question right there, what Ed just said, which is... Since they can't borrow when they get to a certain amount of debt, the federal government won't even lend them money. Right. Therefore, they've, they're kept. So they know that eventually they're, they're, the day of reckoning eventually shows up. Well, you're right, except in places like the state of Illinois where they expect a federal bailout, which may not Okay, come. so then we, we allow China to determine how much debt right. they're willing to buy. That's right. <laughs> well, the truth that's, is that, that 70% of our debt is owned by the American people, so what are we going to do? Think about it. You ask the American people how much we'll they're willing to buy. Cut down spending. Yeah, but that's never going to happen with the Democratic Party. It'll never happen. We're willing to bite the butt. I was thinking more along the lines, what you have to do is just have everybody in D.C. read the Constitution and only do what it, they're allowed to do in there, and then they wouldn't need all this money. Uh, they wouldn't read. The, no, uh, they we're going back to that. reading again. Listen, Kamala Harris was telling <laughs> I'm sorry, Kavanaugh. I'm sorry, man. You're asking them to read. Watch, watch reading. Kamala Harris. Talking to Kavanaugh, saying that book that you're referring to, she doesn't even know what it was. It was his pocket constitution. Yeah, she she was just being. Yeah, she called that little. He had a ruffled yeah. uh, constitution, a pocket constitution, all beaten up, all beaten up to show you how much he he lives with it, sleeps with it, probably under his pillow at night. And I didn't think he. I didn't think he really did that. Yes. Yeah. It's he all, had it. He had it. Was all. It was in shreds. You know. Yeah. It was. Yeah. It was like his handy band. We need to send him a new one. The Cato Institute has a good one. To like create a prop. Yeah. These constitutions should be sent with the same paper that the passports are made from. Right. Right. Well, this is a good one. When he when they were talking about the 
about precedent, and I mean, I heard the clip in, in the hearings last week. He said, uh, you know, when he had a decision that he was faced with, and pretty much every decision he did, he followed precedent. And he said, I don't get to pick and choose which Supreme Court precedents I get to follow. I follow them all. That's a dangerous attitude. Well, no, no. For a, for a federal appellate court judge, he has to follow the Supreme Court precedent. Once right. he's on the Supreme I Court. I understand that. Maybe you, it's because I'm not, I haven't been through law school. No, no, no. It's just man. hierarchy. It's hierarchy. You know, it's like a slippery don't slope bet, up. <laughs> right. It's hierarchy. Now, once, once he, he gets... Yeah, I agree. And yeah, you, but I, uh, the truth is that even even uh, even the smartest of the smarts, uh, have, they all acknowledge, and including Mr. Nelson today, the Constitution, you have to delve into it. It can't be the right. answer of everything because the written language is limited. And if we're so strict to the point where we can't even perceive a, pre- a, a precedent right. because of the changing times, uh, the Supreme Court's in trouble. It just it has to evolve and ha- yeah. they have to... They have to, unfortunately, I hate to say it, but it's it, we we have to re- rely on conservative thinkers to be on the Supreme Court. And I'm praying one day right. for a six-three court because this country's not will not right. be fixed. Well, we're, we're going to have that because we I need think a six-three. Notorious RBG is uh, not long. When will we have a six-three? When was the last time we had a six-three uh, conservative? Conservative. 1935. <laughs> Really? I thought that was the Warren Courts. No, no, no. Thir- 1935. Oh, that's, that, was, uh, that was Berger. Yeah, no, that was uh, Chief Justice Hughes. He was the majority. Uh, he was the Chief Justice? Yeah, they were all Republican uh, appointments or conservative Democrats Well, that like doesn't Cardozo fare well. Those, those were economic uh, disastrous times, 28 to 30. Well, no, and until 35, the Supreme Court held the line. And then in 36, Roosevelt won big and the court folded because Roosevelt threatened to pack the court. Oh, so then the then the but I mean, I mean Coolidge didn't get a lot of credit for being a, an economic whiz. You know? He was well. Then they blame him for the depression of, no, of no, twenty. That was of Hoover. 20, Hoover contributed. No, to the Hoover depression. was uh, inherited the, no, the, the decisions it was that fine. Coolidge it made. Was, Coolidge left a humming economy. Uh, humming was, the the roaring twenties. Yes, and then it imploded. And it no, imploded was, on Hoover. That was because it the imploded Federal Reserve on Hoover. Tightened the the monetary supply excessively, and that's why Bernanke did the exact opposite in two thousand eight. Read Milton Friedman's uh, Economic History of the United States. His so he chapter. didn't blame he didn't blame Coolidge. No, Coolidge has never been blamed. Hoover Federal Reserve. and his Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve. The America has had more monetary instability since the Federal Reserve was created. This is true. Than before. Okay, so uh you know, we we are uh we still got a good solid what four minutes left, right? Or more. No, we have until seven. We have until seven. Again I'm um the my fast watch. I'm way ahead of the ball here. Because I have an hour ahead. <laughs> we still got like twenty five minutes. So uh, because I'm uh, I'm playing guitar with uh, my friend Juliet. All right. Oh, you want to shamelessly Peter, plug your concert now? Go, go ahead, ahead. Go ahead. I'll plug. No, I won't plug the concert, but I will plug <laughs> our YouTube channel if you don't mind. Go yeah. ahead. We got we got a name now. You remember my hat, right? I called it my Guido hat. Yeah, your Guido hat. Well, uh, if, you, if you saw Juliet, you would realize you can remember Juliet pretty easy, but nobody really remembers me without the hat. So we're called Juliet and the Hat Guy. Oh, uh, Juliet and the you Hat Guy. You should be Juliet and Guido. I, but I'm, no, I don't want to use Guida. Plus, I don't really have that much Italian blood. That's okay. Yeah. 
All right. I, anyway, I, yeah, we, we set up a YouTube channel. But anyway, I, that was uh, really interesting. I would have called your ba- I would have called your band the Hat and a bunch of crackers. Yeah, is your is your segment going to be called Guns and is your well, Crackers is Florida, you know? Guns and convertibles. Know, you got to go to Indian Town or Miami to meet people from Florida. I live in Stewart. No, there's a. You come over here, you need a passport. What are you kidding me? You need a visa to yeah, come down to South Florida. I was on the radio station, four different people talked to me while I was on Key Biscayne. All four of them started in Spanish. <laughs> this is true, including uh, your order and your meal. You didn't know what you're eating until after you. F- <laughs> you had no idea what you're eating until you're done. <laughs> yeah, Key Biscayne is. Yeah, he switched to English. But, well, I did, I did understand. He asked me what I wanted to drink. I did understand that. All right. Well, anyway, guess what, gentlemen? You know, 2050, you're not going to be allowed to speak English in America. Oh, come on. <laughs> oh, in fact, come I on. think the ballot should be only in English. If you can't read English, you shouldn't be voting. Well, the uh, Republicans have got to come to the conclusion that they better make Election Day a weekend and not a weekday and just admit to the fact that the working class are going to vote more and therefore we have a... a a higher hurdle to overcome because I think Republicans. The working class is turning Republican because I, they're getting I understand, jobs. but if we don't have election days, we have early voting for two weeks. Most people have to read to do early voting. Oh come on, God! <laughs> You're back to the reading thing again. There's no reading going on. I, I know because I'm a, I'm a proponent for for expanding and modernizing libraries, and mm-hmm. nobody cares about libraries and i well, believe well they start caring about well, libraries you don't need library there's less need i'm for dying libraries you don't now. know how beautiful Everything it is, is to go into a library i agree but because it's the only place that's quiet in this entire planet is the no, library a lot of the public libraries are full of uh, noise noise <laughs> no i don't think so man guys don't tell me that every library i've gone into in south florida is quiet man the coral gables library I was in there. That's maybe, where you vote, right? Huh? That's the voting place. No, not for not for Keepers Scanners. Okay. Um, I the uh, I vote at the Vizcaya. Early okay. voting is in Vizcaya. Uh, well, I'm gonna I'm, on Constitution Day. I'm gonna get to see. Remember, I told you I tried to teach. I volunteered to teach in Martin County, and they said I wasn't allowed to because I didn't have a law degree. You told me it was because of your hat. <laughs> um, I did. They didn't. Yeah, they didn't know about my hat because it was done by email. Oh, okay. And I would be, I mean, I normally don't go outside without my hat, but I would be willing to take my hat off if they let me do that. So you're going to do it? Uh, well, no, they rejected me. They said you have to have a law degree to teach the Constitution at the high school level. And meanwhile, a professor so, just told us. Isn't that amazing? Ago, I mean, look at, the dichotomy, look at the dichotomy, Keith, of what you just said. The Whoever's rejecting you is saying that you have to have a law degree. We just had the most prominent constitutional law professor tell us that it's in reality it's the exact opposite it's the law professors are failing their students because they don't practice law oh my no, they've God. never practiced I, like law I said earlier and no no offense to ed but i in some of these dis- discussions i've had i think i got an advantage because i haven't been to law school that's what people used to say when i was uh, when i would always disparage myself for having uh not finished college, and uh, they say, hey, man, believe me, I got a college degree. You're smarter than I am, yeah, and well, it's because you have less stone wines. Well, Rush, <laughs> Rush Limbaugh and yeah. uh, Sean Hannity did not finish college. Yeah, I feel uh, I feel Mark a good Levin company. is a lawyer and worked at the Department of Justice for for uh, Meese yes. in the but Reagan administration. The, I think, I don't know what the number is, I think more than half the people that go to college would be better off just getting an internship at age 18 and 
Well, there's, there's a lot of trades that they could be getting. With a, uh, with a degree that nobody cares about. And, you know, unless you're going to be a doctor or, you know, I'm an engineer, you know, they won't even talk to you. you know, first question they say, where'd you go to school? But unless you've got a career like that, and, and I went, so I, you know, I went there. I seen college, you know. I wasn't that impressed. Well, I mean, the, 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 the very fact that you were an engineer says a lot about you because, uh, you know, engineers are just... All of you. I have yet to know an engineer that's just not smart. And you, uh, you asked very thorough questions. I hope you didn't well, scare off Nadelson, Professor Nadelson. It's a fact check thing because yep. in engineering, a lot of the, the stuff that people get away with where they you know, don't care too much about facts, if you try that in engineering, you get fired pretty quick because the facts just really come around and bite you in that or, business. Or the bridge comes down like it happened here at FIU. Yeah. Well, the, the engineers are getting uh, a lot of flack for the a bridge, and I've uh, spoke to some engineers who told me it's the people who executed the stress test that mm. got sloppy, mm. and they, they just put stress on a brand-new bridge mm-hmm. that wasn't set perfectly, and they were trying to set it perfectly, mm. and they just uh, just uh, they just didn't mind that it was off one centimeter, and they kept on moving the trolley. I don't mm. know if I'm calling it correctly, but it's like a trolley, like a right. dolly. Right. And, a, and one degree off over a span of 50 feet of roadway yeah, that, created too much stress and it crashed. Mm. You know, it just fell apart. So the guys who executed the plan wasn't necessarily the designers. Apparently the designers had done a, a, a job, a correct job, but in installing it, the installing engineer, the supervisors, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, just got sloppy on how that dolly was moving across the street. I, I, excuse me if the do, the word dolly is not correct, but it's the little contraption yeah, that's fine. Yep. that measured. All, all engineering programs have to be designed around people being allowed to make mistakes because it's all people. It's the same as the government, I think. That, yeah. you gotta, you gotta, the designer might make a mistake. The tester might make a mistake. The guy who writes a test might forget something. Well, and kids did participate in that design. Everybody, like, checks each other. Engineering students. And you don't want a bridge. I mean, I would imagine there's a lot of review steps before you put a bridge together. I I worked on, you know, telephone systems for ships, but it's the same kind of thing. The Navy gets upset if it doesn't work right. I mean, you find out a year later, that's something. When you're in the South China Sea. Yeah, when it's too late, you're out in the middle of the ocean. Oh, it's not working. I can't hear the other guy. Yeah, that's when I became a fact checker. You get encouraged, you know, you got to go say, like I said, you know, if you, if you want to tell the captain of an Aegis cruiser that this thing that we did, we we, uh, we figured out how to fix it, but we have to change something, or do you, would you rather, like, wait and tell him later when he's at sea? Oh, That's before, hey, uh, Keith, by the way, I'm going to be sending you this, uh, uh, the recorded uh, portions. Can you edit it down so that it's just, uh, uh, just the question and answers and conversations with Nadelson? Because that's... that's uh, yeah, yeah, I know how to do that. That'd be really cool to keep that podcast and circulate that baby around. Um, I'd like to have a, a copy of it back. This send me back this way because yeah, this is a real shining moment for Concrete Conservative Hour. That was a great guest. Yeah, I uh, I would I would like to listen. I would listen to the whole thing again from from the beginning. Hey, All right. Do you think John is sitting there waiting, Ancy, uh, for Keith to get off the? Poor John, and he was supposed to be before me, right? Yeah, maybe he got caught up. <laughs> Who knows? Right, He's having dinner. And I got to go. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna. I have, have to. Fun. I have to go see the governor now at seven o'clock. Let's see DeSantis here in South Florida. I'm already okay. calling the governor. Well, don't. As we say, don't monkey up Florida. Later. <laughs> okay, Take care. Stay free. So maybe John is uh, 
not calling in at all. Who knows? I don't know. John is uh, he was scheduled for six, but we ran over. That was a very good guest. I think it's important to get people that are very knowledgeable about this. And it was good to you know have you challenged on some of your ideas. And uh, that's how you sharpen. You know, iron sharpens iron. Well, so, guess what? Where I really duped you. And I did, think where did you dupe me? Me when I talked about the last amendment to the Constitution, I saw you going into the, your pocket right, Constitution right, right, right. Yeah, to not, refresh your memory absolutely. of the 27th. And notice I had an angle. Yes. This layman's uh, thinking. It's always good to have some. Someone who's really sharp. Yep. He's yep. really like the rock. And Mr. Nelson was impressed with some of my angles. Absolutely. And I thank him very much for giving me. He, he probably encouraged you to go to law school. and uh, you know. But you should look up. He's, uh, the Independence Institute is, is, a, is a leading uh, free market think tank. And you might check them out. They're in Denver. And there are a lot of You mean I got to read? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't you say you, were, you like libraries? <laughs> libraries are going out of style. but See, that's um, what I can't stand. Yeah, you guys saying that. on the internet. I'm uh, sorry, man. People need a library. They need to see books on a shelf. They need to be able to download digital stuff. There's so many people who don't have access to these computers. Don't think everybody has one. Really? Uh, there's so many children that their parents cannot afford not even the internet mm. monthly. And if they do, well, when, but when they not go all to the 12 library, months. They borrow the laptops in the library. To, well, there to you go. The but you got to go to a library. You yep. got to encourage parents have got to snap at them and say, you're not going with you to your friend's house. I'm dropping you off at the library and I'm not picking you up until afterwards. All right. Well, that sounds good. And, and and the library. That's what I did when I was in college and then law school, hung out at the library and studied. And that's what I didn't do. Now I'm a radio host. See, we need a library. We need a lot more libraries. I agree. I'm all for it. Okay. So, um, John, if you're going to call, you've got like 15 minutes to call 305-365-7777. If anybody here is locally heard this uh, show, this you know, you should put all that information on your website and on your LinkedIn. All no, of that all information that. is everywhere. No, no, not on your website. On the website, LinkedIn. the phone number's there. You just no. got to look. Yeah, okay. 305-365-7777. Toll free, 1-844-645-WSQF. Bleaker Radio. We'll be back in a moment. So just imagine. All right.
Okay, what you got? What you got? Tell me. Tell me. Now that you've imagined, uh, do you really feel that this country can be saved by not getting rid of the 16th and 17th Amendment? Sure. You don't understand. I'm, I'm really affected by this. I well, am- certainly the 17th Amendment can be... Uh, can be gotten rid of. I think that the federal government is just spending so much, it's hard to make it go cold turkey. Uh, but definitely, if we get the three amendments that the Convention of States Project is proposing, that will be a big step forward. The first one is fiscal responsibility, and there's going to be a lot of work having to be done to make sure that it works, that it but doesn't. you're still stealing from people's wages, man. People's <clears throat> blood, sweat, and tears. I agree. But that was, you got to go back to history. I mean, history is not all good stuff. During that period of the progressive era, the populist movement, uh, President McKinley was assassinated. He was generally a conservative voice. Then he was replaced by Teddy Roosevelt, that cowboy. So, you know, that was, you know, America at that time also passed uh, uh, prohibition. That was a mistake, but that was amended and uh, gotten rid of. So you can't redo history. Sure, the 16th and 17th Amendment were bad, but... You can't just give up on the whole country because of that. If you look at the Convention of States, all our problems are right there. Well, it made it, criminals not out, all of them. Yes, yeah, so, I mean six, the Sixteenth Amendment made criminals out of everybody because of taxing your your uh, income. Absolutely, nobody yeah. pays all the taxes, and the ones who do are really poor. Well, right? half the people don't pay any taxes at all. Uh, and, uh, hello, and, and the top. You know, X percent pays almost all of it. Yeah, and I then agree. they're giving refunds to people who may right. don't earn, really earn income tax credits, right? Yeah, and and, and Marco Rubio wants to have uh, you know paid family leave. I remember don't know he held up the whole budget uh, to right. double the tax credit, <clears throat> right. which was uh, quite frankly good politically, not very good for the country per se. But quite frankly, anytime you anytime you deny the government money. You've done a good thing. That's a good thing, yes. Absolutely. I'll never forget what I've said this to you before. I remember when Scott's first year in office, he took literally a billion dollars away from Miami-Dade public schools. Good. And it was the year of Mm 2012-2013. I walk into that building because they had to, by law, discuss the ballot guidelines for what I had nothing to say or do. But Mm -hmm. at least I got to be heard but I didn't really have an input on how this ballot was going to take place. And mm-hmm. So I arrived there, and I, 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 of course, didn't know where I was going, so I was in the elevator touching floors mm-hmm. until somebody would greet me that knew who I was. <laughs> and sure enough, I found empty floors, and it was the billion dollars that they cut. They all had those to people cut had to go away. Yeah, right. the desks were there. You, some of them even have papers on them, but there was nobody there because there was no chair. So it was like, whoa, Armageddon. Yeah, it was great. You should have taken it. It was like a, a nuclear picture. holocaust at, the, <laughs> at right. the public school. Neutron bomb. And then I asked, and I, of course, me being smarty pants, and they weren't happy with to see me because I'm the guy who fired the first ch- trigger letter in, in Florida history. Like, this guy's going to create a, a movement here. What's he up to? I go, hey, look at me seriously. I'm a GED. School choice. <laughs> yes. I graduated general education diploma. So take me seriously. I graduated from the stinking system. I know exactly what's wrong. And I'm so delighted to see all those empty desks, right. three floors of it. Was that cutbacks or what? And he goes, you Governor Scott. Yes. And he gave us back. And then later I find out, like in 2014 or 15, he commended... Mr. Carvalho for fixing his 
fixing, fixing his house. He put his house in order. Okay. And it gave him back $500 million. Hmm. But he netted 500 for the other counties. So what do you think uh, the Governor DeSantis will do? If we if he gets elected, is he going to be a strong advocate for school choice and school reform? And I find it. I, I find him so far. He's been uh, quite general, okay. but he's definitely school choice. Right. I believe that uh, he's hearing me out. I believe that if we ever amend this law, it's going to happen during his administration. The Florida Parent Empowerment Act. Is that what it is? The Florida Parent Guardianship School Guardianship. under the Governing mm-hmm. School Act. Okay. Now, the Governing School Act will probably have to change its name because it was stolen uh, from me in the recent school amendment because Which? the person I most spoke about it sponsored the amendment, and he called his amendment the Governing School Act, and people immediately called okay. me to but compliment me. Has that me. amendment been kicked off the November ballot by the Florida Supreme Court? No, that's the Constitutional education. Amendment. The Constitutional okay. Amendment... I'm glad was found to be unconstitutional okay. because my idea now holds much more water because mine doesn't go that far. Mine is not a constitutional amendment. Mine is just an amendment to an existing law that's been passed already. Okay. So I'm just defining who the stakeholders are in any school, mm-hmm. and I believe them to be taxpayers, not teachers. Do you have any state legislature le- legislators that you think— uh well, be helpful. they're all gone because you term like term limits. limits. Yes, yes. Well, you know, so who are we going to talk to? Well, Marily Cancio for one. Yep. Who I had a nice conversation with this weekend as she opened up her her office. Mm-hmm. And I believe that uh, I think I have one more year with Kelly Stargell. I'm not sure if she's done. Who's that? From Lakeland. If she's okay. on board, she's disappointed me in the past so maybe mm-hmm. she'll redeem herself because she Lake knows one. she knows she failed me and failed all of Florida because right. right now I've I will admit and I will admit this on the air I've been a bad boy for failure to amend this law I'm totally my fault I'm not blaming anybody but myself for failure to amend this law and not convince uh, the Republican Party of this state to allow parents to take back their schools by calling an interest school Why vote. Why tell listeners what law you're referring to? Yes. State Statute 1,233, Clause 3B, states that a conversion to charter can be had if two parents, teacher and a parent, or ESAC member and a parent, present... What's ESAC? ESAC is uh, kind of hard to uh, remember. Educational Excellence uh, something... Okay. Committee. Okay. It's a combination of uh, parents and teachers, okay. kind of like a PTA with more gumph, where they uh, determine curriculums. Okay. And they apparently have more credence than a PTA would have. All right. PTA is more fundraising arm, and PTA pretty much uh, are not taken too seriously. Mm-hmm. And they're really in bed. Most parents that are PTA actually... Uh, are bullied by teachers. Okay, yep. Uh, I experienced that as a PTA president. They didn't want to think about anything other than a tiny little matchbox. Mm. They thought so small it wasn't even funny, but they did raise money. We were the greatest PTA right. money yeah. raisers. It's unheard of. Most PTAs raise five, ten thousand $10,000 a year. We would raise 300000 Okay, all right. I mean, we were impressive folks. So I was very proud of that, and, and uh, I was not involved in f- fundraising at all as PTA president. I just let the last PTA do its thing. My my thing was to maintain uh, uh, order from the standpoint of you guys go about 
but I'm going to elevate the ground game here, mm-hmm. and I'm going to demand that the school be knocked down. And um, I already had worked on that that issue way before these well, people what you even got met caught me. Up on was that this conversion yes. currently requires that both the parents and the teachers voting separately approve of the conversion, 50, which, gives 50 the, plus one. which gives the teachers a, a veto, yes. in effect. Yes, if you have to win two elections, it's very unfortunate to submit your kids to abuse during a campaign that lasts five days, mm-hmm. fire the trigger letter first, uh, 90 days to call the vote, the county controls the balloting, the yep. actual language, they allow you to attend to, to inform you what they're going to write against. You don't really have a say to veto it. Okay. They also control the mailing list. Therefore, you can send out a mailer uh, presenting the yes votes, right. positives, and they can send out whatever the hell they want. Well, I, w- I would think every parent who gets this would vote yes to get this more This is not control. the case. In, yeah. in, in Key Biscayne, most of the parents weren't necessarily registered voters of the United States. These are what, resident uh, aliens, aliens. who were paying all the taxes. They were very scared by the teachers telling them, look, we're in A school, why we need to convert the charter mm. if we're already in A school? And I said out loud and clear, because they're A teachers and we're in A school, they deserve an A state-of-the-art building. Right, right. Well, that was lost. The school was renovated, now there's a lot of sick people in our community because of this renovated school. Five teachers with breast cancer in continuous walls uh, two parents that I know of have breast cancer as well. One has already passed away um, in her this early 40s. Asbestos? I believe that asbestos really attacks the lungs, not the breasts, but the breasts mm. and the lungs are pretty close together. Okay. And I can see, and I have asked, although the tumors look completely different under the microscope, I can see how one leads to another. But you also have mercury, you have lead, you right. have all kinds of other contaminants that I'm not even familiar with from schools uh, built in the 50s. Right. Some of this has a result of oxidation from the storms that have come through here right. since the 50s. Mm-hmm. Um, just deterioration of materials also creates new chemicals. We had asbestos in our water pipes mm-hmm. as well as in the building. Uh, they, a lot of it was mitigated, but there's also an, an amendment uh, by a Costaldo study that was done in 2009, commissioned by the school board, that said they didn't get it all. Well, guess where all means? The window sills mm. and those were poked out in the mm. renovation to put in hurricane windows. Right. So I believe that's that's what happened here. Uh, I don't know for sure. So the key is to get this amendment to change the and to or, okay. so that I win the teacher's vote, or a parent wins the the parent well, you vote. You should go for the parent vote. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the fallback position is either or. Right. So it's not eliminating entirely. It would be right. nice. It would be at-large well, voting. You wouldn't, you wouldn't do a, a conversion where you won the teacher's vote but not the parent's vote, right? I yes, mean, you were. If the teacher would. went under yep. the present law, yep. it <clears throat> can't happen that way. Okay. They both have to agree, which is impossible. Plus, you're, again, if you I you're, would just say don't let the— don't let the teachers vote. Let the imagine if decide. I can't get if I can't get the Republicans to agree to just make them all together. Right. You know, one popular right. vote so, where there is no teacher veto. So and tonight I'll, we're going to go see uh, Ron DeSantis. Uh, Ron DeSantis. It's and, seven o'clock. We're at the Concrete Conservative. It's time to go back to rock and roll. For well, those of but you, let's say what we're going to have next week is uh, Monday, September seventeenth, is the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. Uh, in September 17th, 1787. So we're going to have a special show focusing on whether the Constitution is still relevant. Should we do without the Constitution? 
recent article, opinion piece in the New York Times argued that the subversion of democracy was the explicit intent of the framers of the Constitution, which, by the way, I think just about all the framers were homeschooled. So that's an argument for uh, school choice. Okay, so next so week we'll do, we're going to focus on the Constitution, the anniversary of the Constitution, and whether it's still relevant. Well, I think then, uh, now that we're leaving here, the concrete conservative, we're going to go... Um, we're going to go out and party with Ron DeSantis, who's uh, opening his campaign, launching his campaign here in South Florida with his lieutenant governor. And we're going to go to the Bay of Pigs Museum to have a chat with the man. In Cayocho. And we believe he will demand the amendment to State Statute 1233, Clause 3B. It's called the Florida Parent Empowerment Law. Anyway, how about them apples? We cover all facets we stay free on a regular basis and the only way we can do it is by example so enjoy zz top you know what we're going to talk about yeah zz top Le from legs houston if you like our programming on wsqf 94.5 in key biscayne you can also hear us very far away nationwide wsqf radio.com and if you like our audio files and our subject matter, subscribe to YouTube Mac on the Rock Rampage. Take care and stay free.